going on, podcasting world? Welcome to episode 80 of the Core Console RX podcast. Cole, that is 20 away from 100. Is it? Yes. Wow. 20 away. 8-0. Yes. Hmm. Almost 1-0-0. Zero, zero. Well, that's assuming we release them in the order that we recorded them. Doesn't matter. We're not doing that this time? <laughs> Just whatever. Who cares? <laughs> it doesn't matter. The point is, we're going to get to triple digits soon, and... It's ridiculous. I can't well, believe we've done it this long. This is might be considered the eighty first episode if you count, you know, the lost episode. Oh yeah. The original. That was a that was atrocious. We'll need the I don't even remember what the topic was. Was it hypertension? Oh, it was just like let's introduce ourselves. Oh goodness. yeah, let's make that great. It yeah. was horrendous. Let's let's uh, introduce ourselves. We're so interesting. So I want us to be. It wanted to be like the lost episode of SpongeBob, and I want us to keep mm. it on like a VHS. Right, right, right. Uh, once we get to episode one thousand, mm-hmm. maybe, maybe. I don't know where they, it is. Do you? If they pay us enough money, yeah. Oh, we could find it. You think so? Oh, sure. It's on my desktop, probably somewhere. Probably downstairs, right? Maybe. I have no clue. I really don't have a clue. I probably erased it. It was atrocious. <laughs> we'll find it. But yeah, it was terrible. Anyways, what the heck are we talking about? Uh, Another osteo. Yeah, why not? Yeah, we're already we already did one osteo. Let's just bring in the next. Yeah, the good thing is we've already done this episode on what was it, episode twenty seven. It was episode twenty seven. Yeah, so so it just makes sense to do this one again on episode eighty. Well, here's the deal. I think that we've been talking for you know seventy nine episodes. Right. That uh, we we've doing all these overviews mm-hmm. that will actually go into something a little more specific. About one of those mm, topics. That's true. So Maybe. we're we're coming through. Yeah, totally. Yeah, I think that's what we're doing. Yeah, we're coming through. Plus, probably most of you aren't going to go back and watch episode twenty-seven. I would imagine. So probably would have made sense just to do like rheumatoid arthritis because that's a different type. But it is a different type. That's true. What that's we're going to do is go more in depth about some updates with osteoarthritis. Some stuff that you've already had. <laughs> yeah, some stuff you already had plus some. So, yeah, and we'll do rheumatoid arthritis, too, if you play your cards right. Yeah. We'll see. you got to pay us a lot of money. Mm. Or just wait until us <laughs> run out of episodes to talk about. Yeah. Good so, too. normal cartilage. Um, cartilage, obviously, is a uh, complex hydrophilic extracellular matrix. Um, it's composed up of water, um, chondrocyte, collagens, proteins, hyaluronic acids, and um, several different structural components. So, you know, you'll see things, um, the articular cartilage as well, um, which is like a type 2 collagen, and then agricans, um, which is like a proteoglycan that's linked together with um, hyaluronic acid, and that's going to uh, create this sort of electrostatic repulsion of the proteoglycans, which um, helps with the um, withstanding some of the compression and things as the joints kind of move together. So um, w- within, you know, normal extracellular matrix um, of the cartilage, there's these conjoint, these um, con- chondrocytes, and these are kind of like the only cells in the cartilage. So they're not, um, they're avascular, um, and they're responsible for bringing in components of the cartilage as well as keeping the, the health of, of the cartilage in the overall joint. Um, so normal cartilage does have this turnover, um, which helps repair and, um, restore cartilage. These, so that's kind of what the chondrocytes are doing, um, in response to, um, you know, the demands of the joint, whether it's loading and unloading from like normal physical activity or like strenuous exercise or whatever the case may be. Yeah. I think of, I think of cartilage kind of like the, the, uh, shocks, the suspension of the body, right? Yeah. Things sure. pushed together. It kind of compresses. It braces. Yeah. Boom. That's that's my analogy. 
Um, hyaluronic acid is a hot topic recently, yeah. isn't it? Um, yeah. So in adults, cartilage chondrocyte metabolism is slow. Um, it's regulated by multiple growth factors. Um, it's stimulated. Catabolism and proteolysis is stimulated by other factors. Uh, we won't go too much into the weeds on that. But if the cartilage is injured, chondrocytes react by removing the damaged areas, increasing synthesis of the matrix um, constituents to repair and restore the cartilage. So that's, that's the idea. So like Mike said, normal um, turnover of cartilage um, is common and it helps repair, restore the cartilage to meet the demands uh, that you are putting on it with physical activity um, and stress. So um, as, with this movement, so if you have like this um, cyclic loading, unloading of the joints, the, the nutrients um, or known as like the synovial fluid um, kind of come into, they flow into the cartilage and um, sort of lubricate the joint, keep it healthy. Immobilization actually reduces that nutrient supply and reduces the synovial fluid. And so when we think of osteoarthritis, you know, obviously we think of pain and, you know, we can't exercise because of the pain, but actually normal physical activity is beneficial for joint health. And so when we kind of get into the treatment options, one of the big things is looking at non-pharmacological options to kind of strengthen the joints. Yeah, yeah, definitely counterintuitive. Whenever I think of osteoarthritis, I just think of like hmm, inflammation and whenever something is inflamed with me, at least if it's a muscle, I always think, well, let's just rest it, let it heal, and use meds, and it'll be better. Um, but yeah, physical activity is beneficial for joint health. So if we think of like a normal joint, you have like the capsule kind of um, making like a, I guess a semicircle, if you will, covering up the um, synovium and the cartilage itself, the meniscus. Um, and as osteoarthritis starts to form, we may see like bone cysts, um, we may see like a thickening of the capsule. Um, this synovial like will have like uh, inflammation, hypertrophy. You will see, you know, um, osteophyte formation, which is kind of like this growth that comes off of the bone itself. Um, bone mar uh, marrow lesions can happen. So lots of different kind of pathology taking place. Um, meniscal degeneration can happen. And it's just sort of like this deterioration of the the joint itself and what's what's basically happening is the the two bones are getting closer and closer together until where they're eventually um actually you know rubbing together and causing issues yeah and the reason they are able to come together and rub together is um repeated damage um to the articular cartilage through trauma other injury um, excessive joint loading uh, if a patient's overweight or other reasons might cause injury to that joint in response to that damage, the chondrocyte activity increases um, to try to remove and repair damage. And over time, and over multiple cycles of this, there is cartilage breakdown, uh, cartilage loss, and apoptosis of the chondrocytes, leading to the rubbing together of the bone and the, um, the issues that you deal with with OA. Uh, you can also, because of that, you have joint space narrowing. Um, the remaining cartilage softens, it develops uh, fibrillations, um, the vertical clefts, which are inside of the cartilage. Um, you have new bone formation, like Mike mentioned, osteophytes in the margins of the joint. Um, there's direct evidence that osteophytes can help stabilize osteoarthritic joints, interestingly. 
So some of the symptoms, um, typically patients will describe pain, which is usually like this deep aching type pain, um, pain upon like uh, initial motion, um, stiffness that affects joints. Um, now the pain itself, the stiffness will usually resolve um, with motion. So as the, as the joint starts to move, you get some of that leftover synovial fluid kind of, um, you know, as they call it, the gelling phenomenon, but then it uh, recurs, the, the stiffness and all that kind of comes back with rest. Um, a lot of times it's related to weather. So, you know, different changes in bari uh, barometric pressure can cause different changes in the joints as well. Um, and then, uh, you know, this really can lead to limitations on a patient's daily life. Um, and then especially with uh, instability with weight-bearing joints, put them at risk for falls, things like that. Yeah, you've had your grandma say that her bad leg can predict the weather? Yep. There you go. There you go. Barometric pressure. Um, yeah, you can't, you can't really restore cartilage. Um, really what we're trying to do with treatment is to lessen the severity of symptoms, um, reduce progression of the disease, and improve quality of life for the most part. So uh, let's go into some of the, I guess like we'll do a brief overview of the drugs because all of these things are going to be drugs that you've seen before. But um, we'll mention Tylenol, even though as we see, we really don't use that too much. Um, depending on which resource you're looking at, max dose of less than 4,000 to 3,000 milligrams per day. Some patients or some resources will tell you to err on the side of caution and use 3,000 or less um, to minimize liver toxicity. Um, but also, uh, they're going to be less effective than NSAIDs, um, but also less adverse effects. So we don't have to worry about the, the uh, cardiovascular issues, the GI side effects, things like that. And if a patient uh, is taking warfarin, we do need to drop that to 2,000 milligrams of acetaminophen per day max. Yeah, definitely um, a little bit safer. And whether or not we're going to recommend it first time, a lot of the times your patients are going to have taken it anyway. So yeah. probably need to consider that. Uh, but the other options, like Mike mentioned, are the NSAIDs. So we have quite a few, short-acting, long-acting, um, as well as uh, Celebrex, which is the COX-2 inhibitor. Uh, but over-the-counter, you're going to see ibuprofen, uh, which is more short-acting, and then the long-acting naproxen, which is a leave over-the-counter. Um, prescription, you have diclofenac, ketoprofen, and endomethacin for short-acting. Uh, some longer-actings would be meloxicam, dibumatone, and peroxicam. All of these I've dispensed except ketoprofen. I don't think I ever dispensed that. Um, yeah, and, and realistically speaking, I mean, naproxen and meloxicam are going to be the two most common. And then as far as your short acting, your ibuprofen and your diclofenac are probably going to be the most common. Um, and then with the COX-2 inhibitor, silicoxib is another option as well. Um, they are basically, NSAIDs in general, are giving their, their or providing their, their primary effect by an inhibiting cyclooxygenase which is, there's two different cyclooxygenases, COX-1, COX-2, and uh, basically that's responsible for converting arachidonic acid into like prostaglandins, um, thromboxanes, leukotrienes, and whatnot. But COX-1 is mostly going to be expressed in the tissue, so it's involved with like gastric cytoprotection, um, vascular homeostasis, platelet aggregation, kidney function, and then COX-2 is more so going to be increased in, uh, in, in states of inflammation, and it's more associated with that, that realm. So um, also with like prostacycline, you can get some um, dilation as well, which 
Cox One, um, we're going to see more so like on the thromboxane produ production side of things, which is more of a vasoconstriction. Um, Cox Two, we'll see some of our prostacyclin, which is our vasodilatory side of things. And so one of the the concerns is we're going to kind of get into is um, the Cox Two inhibitors when you are blocking. Uh, Cox 2 selectively, yes, you are saving the GI um, issues and you're saving the prostaglandins that are supposed to be protecting the kidneys and whatnot, but you are having unopposed thromboxane production, which increases vasoconstriction over time and could lead to, or the thought was it could lead to cardiovascular events. Um, there was another Cox 2 inhibitor called Vivox on the market for a while that was removed for due to cardiovascular uh, risk that was seen um, in case studies. So we'll talk about that in a second, but yeah, w the GI risk was pretty apparent because um, you could see it pretty readily. I think the cardiovascular risk and the awareness of that increased over time with um, more prevalent use of these and even with Celebrex. Uh, it's definitely a concern, especially in patients with other com comorbidities, uh, specifically diabetes. But it can uh, NSAIDs in general definitely increase the risk of serious cardiovascular thrombotic events, uh, heart attack, stroke. Um, it can even occur within the first few weeks of NSAID use, and risk is usually increased with longer use uh, in patients at high risk like diabetes. And uh, usually these warnings are going to be, or always these warnings are going to be on the labels. Uh, patients would be able to see them, but, uh, you know, they don't really generally read them. There was a study that came out. I want, I'm going to say it's like 2017 or 18, somewhere in that area, there was a meta-analysis that, that showed how quickly some of these, uh, this increase in MI and stroke can happen. And that's where they kind of came up with within the first week, mm. potentially. Um, but the thought for a while was that we would have uh, more risk associated with COX-2 inhibitors or the NSAIDs that were more COX-2 selective. So they may be like, I guess, uh, selected, the most selective non-selective would be the way to put it. Um, so things like meloxicam or diclofenac, which are, which lean more towards the COX-2 side of things, um, we kind of have the same risk where you get this unopposed COX-1 production of thromboxane and potentially uh, increased cardiovascular events. So, um, and we can, we'll come back to that, but some kind of, I guess, things to take note of with these individual agents. Endomethacin has some risk of CNS side effects. So we would want to consider avoiding this in patients that have some uh, history of like psych conditions. Um, Paroxicam is one that we probably don't see very often, but it is uh, more high risk for like GI toxicity and has been uh, reported to cause like um, Steven Johnson syndrome and other severe skin reactions. Um, Celecoxib has, is actually contraindicated in patients that have a, a true sulfonamide allergy. Um, which is, there's a sulfonamide group right smack dab in the center of it. And then um, diclofenac, there was a meta-analysis that came out. It actually came out the first week as I started my new job last year. Oh, really? And uh, it showed that it had a greater chance of MI compared to naproxen. Um, and so we were, when I first got there, they were using diclofenac for everybody. Mm -hmm. And so that was, that was my first, like, thing as a PharmD there. I was sending out an email being like, hey, can we consider maybe not doing that? Yeah, I think that's generally going to be our least favorite uh, right now is diclofenac for cardiovascular side effects at least. Yeah. So, you know, I had a situation, this is only, this is only related to SGS. On one of my rotations, there was a patient with just a million medications and we were going through all of them and she had these, this rash on the bottom of her legs. Her legs were kind of swollen around her ankle and shin area. 
I'm going through her meds. I'm like, oh, I've never seen that before. But, you know, complaining of a rash and it's getting worse, that kind of thing. She's on, I think it was carbamazepine, which has a risk for SJS. And so I was convinced that this is what this was. And, you know, I know that this is like really important, like really bad. So I'm ready to just throw this at the doctor and say, I think this is what this is. You know, she's asked if any of her meds could cause this. Um, and carbamazepine can cause SJS. I think that's what it is. And he goes in and looks at it and he's like, uh, no, yeah, yeah, I think it's just a cellulitis. I'm like, really? And I was super convinced. And so he treats it. She ends up getting better. And I was like, hmm, maybe I don't know as much as I thought. One of my realizations. <laughs> so one of the um, the things that happened with uh, the precision trial, I know I've talked about this multiple times, but um, the precision trial was one of the things that hopefully put to bed the whole debate between celecoxib causing increased risk of cardiovascular issues. And uh, they compared naproxen and ibuprofen head-to-head, um, looking at CV death, non-fatal MI, non-fatal stroke, in patients that had osteoarthritis and rheumatoid arthritis. Um, the problem is, is they, they, at the end of the study, they found no difference in primary outcome. Um, but the different, the problem is, is they used kind of low doses of celecoxib, and uh, there was very low um, number of patients with rheumatoid arthritis, which do tep- typically have more risk of cardiovascular um, disease anyway. Just like five percent of the patients had rheumatoid. So um, celecoxib really wasn't. I mean, didn't show any issues, but there's meta analyses and things like that that have showed that it can increase the risk. So I'm still more of a fan of using naproxen with cardiovascular, you know, issues. This is this was Celebrex, naproxen, and ibuprofen. And ibuprofen. And I mean, isn't there a debate as to whether it really? Or I guess in this one, it did help with serious GI events versus naproxen. And so this and is the thing. This is why, and I actually made a big point of telling my PA students this too, because um, is that the new iPhone? Yeah, it is. Of course it is. <laughs> Listen, don't judge me. Not surprised at all. <laughs> so, um, 11 Pro. <laughs> so, the uh, the serious GI events was said celecoxib was superior to naproxen, which I thought was weird. So, when I looked it up um, in the supplementary outcome, because they just said a composite and they kind of just, you know, lumped them together. The supplementary, when you it actually broke it down and showed which ones were significant, and the only things that were different were constipation and um, uh, um, or iron deficiency from a possible GI origin. Those are the mm. only two things that were different. So those are their serious GI. Those are the seri- but they lumped them all together as a composite ah, and said serious. Clever. So if you want to get better GI relief, use celecoxib. It's like, well, I mean, kind of, maybe. want to poop a little more. Yeah, that's about it. Hmm, interesting. So it wasn't necessarily just straight GI bleeds, which is what we're primarily concerned about. Right. Hmm, okay. Good to know. And it's more expensive, too. Yeah. So uh, there are topical reliefs, topical options. As far as NSAIDs go, there are topical options. Uh, the most common, which is generic now, is the Voltaren gel, which is Diclofenac. Uh, it uses a dosing card, so if you're sending in a prescription to the pharmacy, it's nice to say how many grams they're going to be applying. Um there are uh, standard doses for wherever they are supposed to apply it. Uh, two grams, four times a day, uh, is a common dose for hands, wrists, and elbows. Four grams, four times a day for feet, ankles, and knees. Uh, you don't want to use more than 32 grams in a day. Don't apply to skin that has open cuts or wounds. And don't shower or bathe for at least an hour after application. Some people swear by this. Some people are like, nah, doesn't do anything, so... I guess it depends on the patient. So the uh, the 
thing with the diclofenac gel is, and that's something that we often will see like in pharmacies and whatnot. A lot of people don't think they work very well. Um, did, uh, and you didn't mention anything about the dosing card that I missed, did you? I did, yeah. You didn't mention the dosing card? Mm-hmm. So it's super easy to overlook. So make sure you yes. tell patients it's in there. I've overlooked it myself. It's like a little clear plastic. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, make sure that you tell them it's in there. Yeah, I was dispensing it and it fell out of the box two days ago. My tech was like, what is that? I'm like, hmm, exactly. <laughs> exactly. But yeah, otherwise you're just putting arbitrary amounts of gel on yourself. Yeah. You don't want that. No, you don't want that at all. And it is supposed to be specified. I'm sure it gets dispensed all the time without it being specified, but it is supposed to be specified on the prescription. Um, It used to be more expensive than it is now, but an insurance could audit. And if you did a day supply uh, without specifying grams, they could take the money away. But the generic is is way cheaper than it used to be. Yeah. So capsaicin is the -the over-the-counter topical agent. Um, and again, we're going to talk about where these go in therapy in just a little bit, but, um, the mechanism of action behind this, cause it's really just like a red pepper extract. Um, the mechanism of action is it's, it's there to deplete substance P, um, which is another like kind of cytokine, um, inflammatory mediator. And, uh, it takes a while to actually do that because you have to deplete the, the mediator itself. And so it takes about two to four weeks to really start working, and you have to apply it three to four times a day. So it is important to tell patients, if you're going to try this, that it takes a while to start working, and it usually causes some some topical burning and stuff, which will dissipate over time, most likely, but you need to give them a heads up before they just apply it for the first time, because some people don't tolerate it very well. Right. Another option, uh, which they do recommend in the guidelines, is Tramadol, uh, brand name Ultram. It is an opioid, so it's a mu-opioid receptor agonist, and it also inhibits the reuptake of norepinephrine and serotonin. Um, A couple things to note with it, because of that, uh, serotonin syndrome is a risk, you know, depending on um, how significant of a risk you think that is with um, whatever their other medications are, just might be worth counseling on, depending on the situation. Um, Seizure risk, so you may want to avoid in patients with a history of seizures or head trauma. my, my we there's actually a, a patient um not my patient but a patient of someone i know um who it was someone who had really uh uncontrolled seizures finally through a cocktail of meds got them controlled for a couple of years and then they were put on doxapin for sleep which lowers the seizure th- threshold um her seizures went out of control for about a week and she ended up in the ICU and in critical condition. Um, so it's important to consider a patient who might be on seizure medication with medications that um, can lower the seizure threshold. Also has interactions with CYP2D6 and 3A4. Avoid uh, if you're breastfeeding, um, adverse effects, loss of appetite, flushing, dry mouth, insomnia, um, of course, fatigue and making you drowsy. There's uh, prevailing thought that especially in older patients that this is like a a safer version of an opioid sadly if you look at the beers criteria they disagree and are still finding increased risk of uh, mortality similar to um, other coding derivatives and things like that so something to be aware of in your uh, older patients so uh intraarticular corticosteroids um, the two we'll mention is the tremcinolone and methylprednisolone. Um, so these are going to be injected directly into the joint. And, um, you know, some of the adverse effects, you will get some systemic absorption with these. So hyperglycemia, um, potentially some edema, elevated blood pressure, um, 
you can get uh, infections in the joint itself. You can get osteonecrosis. Um, and, you know, so there's, there's definitely some risk that goes along with these. Um, we typically limit to three to four injections per year due to the potential systemic effects of the corticosteroids. Um, after the injection, the patient should minimize activity and stress on the joint for several days. Um, some initial pain relief can be seen within 24 to 72 hours, but uh, really we need to wait about 7 to 10 days after the injection to really see the full effects. Yeah, and for your patients with diabetes, uh, be aware that this can increase their sugar for a period of time. One of my patients, he knows whenever he gets an injection for his back, his sugar is just going to skyrocket for a little while. So he's just aware of it and semi-plans for it. I wish he would plan for it a little better, but <laughs> he's at least aware of it. So uh, we'll get into the end, guys, so stick with us. So duloxetine, Cymbalta. Um, usually we think of this as an antidepressant, but because it's a... Um, a reuptake inhibitor of both serotonin and norepinephrine. Um, it does have uh, some effect on pain as well. In fact, we'll see this a lot of times now in like diabetic neuropathy, things like that. Um, the norepinephrine component really takes uh, into account like um, or takes effect once you get doses of 60 milligrams and higher. So you'll see like 60 milligrams twice a day in diabetic neuropathy stuff like that, um, which is, you know, but this is often used in that case now. Um, adverse effects, though, uh, typically nausea, dry mouth, constipation, um, dizziness, and uh, we would still want to avoid this with other uh, medications that affect serotonin unless we're specifically using them for, you know, something psych-related. But this is uh, the most effective in knee osteoarthritis so this is really the only time we we use this drug so um we, we can use it in other things but it doesn't have great data except for in the knee yeah and i think the new guidelines even mentioned this um along with tai chi and um the studies were positive i don't think they were like excessively positive but um did show some efficacy so interesting uh, another thing we mentioned was hyaluronic acid injections uh, which we talked about where um, that falls in the patho uh, usually it's an injection once weekly for either uh, three or five weeks. Uh, the idea is to um, maintain intra-articular lubrication, of course. Uh, their patients are generally advised to repeat the injections on a schedule uh, a couple times a year, every six months, uh, if the, the previous course worked well for them. A lot of this might be a placebo effect. Um, I know people hear about it and talk about their hyaluronic acid and um, talk about how great it did for them. So if that is working, then great. Um, some adverse effects might be some joint swelling, stiffness, rash, itching, uh, that sort of thing. You want to talk about the studies with that one? Yeah. So and just briefly, because the, there's three different you know sets of guidelines with osteoarthritis, there's probably more. But um, the American Academy of Orthopedic Surgeons does say that they do not recommend using hyaluronic acid in patients with osteoarthritis in the knee, um, which is where it was primarily used. Um, you know, the there was 14 studies that they kind of analyzed in their guidelines, and um, three of those were high strength, 11 were moderate strength, and they assessed, you know, using uh, intraarticular hyaluronic acid injections, and really it showed a low likelihood um, that the of a clinically important benefit coming from the, the medication. Um, none of the improvements that they saw met the minimum criteria that they had said to be clinically relevant, and so they recommended against using it typically. Yeah, interesting, though it's used. Um, so to finish up, we have some more supplementation 
um, glucosamine and chondroitin. It's been around for a while. It's in a lot of branded uh, joint supplements, also generic joint supplements. Um, people frequently take it. Uh, the idea is that they stimulate uh, proteoglycan synthesis from articular cartilage uh, in the body. The efficacy was evaluated um, after two years in one study. I found it not to be statistically significant, um, statistically significantly superior to placebo. So do with that what you will. Uh, when in combination, uh, when the combination was compared with Celebrex in patients with knee osteoarthritis, uh, it was found to be non-inferior in the reduction of pain at six months. So um, it's probably to be expected. Usually well-tolerated uh, market is a, it is a dietary supplement, so it's not regulated by the FDA. Uh, we always recommend looking for the USP label on those, just so you know that what's supposed to be in there is in there. It just doesn't necessarily work like they want it to. Um, and so any product containing less than what's supposed to be in there can compromise efficacy. Um, so in, And also any ingredients not included on the labeling can compromise safety. So be aware of that. Always recommend looking for the USP label. All right, let's get into some of this uh, actual pharmacotherapy. Yes, that's what we came here for, right? I, I don't know what I came here for. <laughs> so, um, I think you live here. Oh, yeah, I do live here. Never mind. Yeah. Okay, cool. So um, starting off with uh, osteoarthritis in the knee, um, they break it down by the level of evidence and then also comorbidity. I would highly encourage you to go download the, the guidelines and kind of look through these um, yourself. This is the, um, uh, let me pull up the. This American College of Rheumatology? No, it's, um, uh, what the heck is it? It's the international one, I believe. Um, ah, international. Yeah. So, but you, the U.S. was involved as well. I'll I'll put the um, the guideline, a link to the guidelines in the show notes. But um, they break it down by knee, and then um, in as well as hip and um, multiple joints being affected, and they break it down by comorbidities as well. So, starting off with level of evidence one A, which is like a high, you know, favor, uh, very strong evidence, um, high consensus for in favor of. Um, if a patient has no comorbidities and they're being treated for knee osteoarthritis, they recommend either a non-selective NSAID, a non-selective NSAID plus a PPI, um, or a COX-2 inhibitor. They don't really specify which one. Um, they also say you could potentially use a uh, corticosteroid as well. So they don't, they're not really picky about which, what they, uh, can go with. And actually I misspoke, um, 1A is actually topical and said first. I was going to so say, I was looking at this, that, I was like, I must be I'm reading an, this I'm completely an, wrong because I'm so confused. <laughs> I'm an idiot. Topical and said uh, first is the level 1A, and then um, from there you go to the non-selective oral agents um, or, or a COX-2 inhibitor. So and, their uh, favorite is like diclofenac gel or right. the paroxicam gel. Um, interesting because, yeah, I, I question how well they work, but I guess it's a lot safer than the other stuff, so you might as well give it a try. That's what they say. Right. Yeah. I know somebody, the Proxicam gel, I can't even think of the brand name. Um, some pharmacy is able to sell it for like 10 bucks cash. For which one? The brand, is in a Proxicam gel? Like oh, yeah. 1.5%. Um, oh, no, I think it's Diclofenac gel, 1.5%. It's the uh, Pro... It starts with a P or yeah. something. Anyways, I'll look up in a second. Yeah. But yeah, very expensive and it's branded, but um, they're able to sell it really cheap. Interesting. Yeah. If you hear my dogs barking in the background, just ignore them. I'm sure the, peop the people know who your dogs are <sighs> at this point, It's right? always one time in the podcast they have to cause a scene. 
So um, now that I've thoroughly confused everyone, starting with topical NSAIDs, going to the oral agents from there. Now, if the patient has gastrointestinal issues um, and topical NSAIDs are not working, then they want to use, um, they say to use a COX-2 inhibitor or one of the um, intra- um, Articular corticosteroids or hyaluronic acid, even because you're you're bypassing the prostaglandin um, blocking of uh, a, a non-selective NSAID. If the patient has cardiovascular issues, they want you to use one of the injectables and not use any of the steroids. And then, uh, if a patient is considered frail, then you can use a topical NSAID, but they want you to use one of the injectables as well. They don't want you to use an oral agent, oral NSAID. Hmm. Um, and then, yeah, if uh, the level two would basically be uh, starting off with the hyaluronic acid uh, with, with no comorbidities. And then if they have gastrointestinal issues, you, they can use an NSAID at that point, but they want you to take it with a PPI. And then um, they also recommend if the patient has like widespread pain associated with their knee osteoarthritis or depression, um, then they want you to use duloxetine. And again, that's the only really time we see evidence in is with duloxetine is in the knee specifically. And they like it with a comorbidity of uh, depression. Yeah, if possible. If possible. Or widespread pain. Right. So. All right. Um, we'll try not to confuse you guys anymore and read the wrong line first. Also, I want to say, sorry, it was not Proxicam. It's Diclofenac 1.5%. I thought it was Proxicam because it's the Pinsed pump. Pinsed, that's the one. I haven't seen that in a while. Mm -hmm. All right, so osteoarthritis of the hip. Um, So the level of evidence 1A, they just basically say refer to 1B. (laughs) (laughs) So you're not using, uh, you're not going to be using diclofenac gel in these these patients. The hip's not going to really get much benefit. Level of evidence, or level 1B, refer to 1A. Yeah. Yeah, I like like it. it. So 1B is going to be your non-selective NSAIDs primarily. Um, and, uh, if the patient has gastrointestinal, then they say to use COX-2 inhibitors. And, um, those are really the two options. They don't really give, um, if they go, if the person has cardiovascular issues or, um, frailty, uh, they want you to go down to the level two evidence and use your best judgment. Um, if the patient does, uh, have to go onto the, the level two for no comorbidities, you can use the COX-2 in that, those patients as well, and then uh, kind of going from down the, down the line. So it's basically just NSAIDs, and um, the COX-2 inhibitors are really the only thing they recommend in HIP. And NSAIDs with PPI. Yeah, yeah. NSAIDs with PPI if they have gastrointestinal issues. Um, Interesting that they don't uh, recommend the topical ones for the HIP um, or in the polyarticular uh, patients, which we'll talk about in a second. So really just knee is when you're considering the topical stuff first line. Right. Hmm. Okay, good. All right. So if you have multiple joints that are, that are affected, um, the pharmacological uh, first line, the 1A, again, refer to level 1B. <laughs> I like it. So easy enough. Um, in that case, we are going to go right to NSAIDs. Um, they do say you can potentially use topical NSAIDs, and you may okay. have to use there a combination of the two because the NSAIDs will help with the um, the you know the overall pain. But the topical NSAIDs, you can kind of reach other joints. So again, this is if multiple joints are being affected. Are there any issues with that? Um, 
like side effect wise that you've seen you don't get a ton of systemic absorption from it so i wouldn't be worried about it i wonder about that um yeah okay good that's what i thought yeah um and then uh if there's gastrointestinal problems again adding on a ppi or using a cox 2 um or topical agent if possible and then yeah, they don't really give any other differences. So, so really, the hardest part with these particular guidelines is knowing the knee. The knee is the only one that gets um, crazy because when you get the yeah. deloxine, the injectable stuff like that. Yeah, the other ones are just combinations of either topical non-selective NSAIDs or NSAIDs of the PPI. And there's other non-pharmacologic stuff. They recommend mind-body exercise, Ooh. dietary and weight management, uh, with or without exercise, self-management programs. Gate aids. I wonder. Mm-hmm. I wonder what they mean by that. Like, uh, like a brace or something. But a walker, nature? or a walker. That would make more sense. <laughs> yeah, brace like a Forrest Gump style. <laughs> yeah, yeah. That's what they do. Uh huh. Neck brace. Just slap it right on there. Yep. Um. So these were the um, OARSI guidelines. That's what I was the variation ah, I was trying to get to. Orsi. Yeah. Orsi. Um, so to kind of summarize those, the, the topical, um, you know, the NSAID, topical NSAIDs are strongly recommended uh, when you're dealing with like the knee and as well as the um, multiple joints. Um, and then for gastrointestinal, uh, first line, we want to think COX-2 inhibitors and then um, the uh, or an NSAID with the PPI. And then with cardiovascular issues, we really don't want to use any NSAID, whether it's a non-selective mm-hmm. or COX-2. If possible, my two cents based on a lot of the data would be to use naproxen if okay. you do have to use Topical, one. okay. Topical would be great. If it, if it doesn't work, though, naproxen yeah. systemic would be the one I would go with. And then um, if you do have, uh, you can use injectables um, as well if it's knee osteoarthritis. And then uh, Tylenol is not really recommended by this group. Um, it's so funny because I feel like in school, like the one thing I remember from osteoarthritis was Tylenol's better than the insets. Mm-hmm. I swear that was like the only thing. And the re- the only reason might have been because it's safer, but uh, it's funny, I guess, efficacy-wise. Yeah. No. And then they also don't recommend opioids. Oral or transdermal. Yeah. yeah. Nothing. Definitely don't give them fentanyl for yeah. osteoarthritis. Slap it right on the spot. Ridiculous. <laughs> what about lidocaine? Talk about lidocaine stuff. Just. They didn't really mention that that I yeah. saw. Um, if the patient wants to try it. Yeah, I don't think it's all that effective, to yeah. be honest. Okay, gotcha. Um, yeah, summarization of the um, hand osteoarthritis. They didn't really make a strong recommendation. And this is from the American College of Rheumatology, so this is actually switching to different guidelines. Yeah, so this is different. Um, so that was the ORSI. This is the um, ACR, American College of Rheumatology. No strong recommendation uh, for non-pharmacologic management of hand arthritis. Um is the evidence supporting those interventions demonstrated only, you know, not great benefit. Um, as far as drugs, they conditionally recommend one or more of these um, topical capsaicin, like we mentioned before, so we didn't even really see that in the other guideline, um, a topical NSAID, other oral NSAIDs, and tramadol for the hand. Uh, for the knee, they recommend Tylenol, so this does pop up in their recommendation, um, NSAIDs, topical and oral, tramadol, as well as... Uh, intraocular corticosteroid injections. Yeah. So they are all about the uh, using kind of whatever you want for hand osteoarthritis. Yeah. I would definitely recommend not using tramadol in these patients. That's just me. Yeah. I would, I, if I, if it was going to pop up, I would want that to be the last thing we try. Mainly safety. And because a lot of these patients are older, 
Oh, there's just nothing you can use on old people, man. I know. Any of the CNS stuff, beers is like, you better not. You better not. <laughs> you better not. So, you know, what's, what's crazy, though, is, is the American College of Rheumatology, um, you know, they kind of are hit or miss as far as the hyaluronic acid, and the in, uh, injectable corticosteroids, the... Um, the orthopedic surgeons, they're like, no, no for hyaluronic acid in the knees. And then the international guidelines are more like, yeah, sure, go ahead. So it's like, yeah, you really got to use your own clinical judgment and evaluate the data yourself. Yeah, I'm sure it's like based on what the patient has tried and failed. And uh, then you're considering those things. Yeah. Don't you love it when there's no consensus? I, I do. Yeah, because then I'm not wrong when I pick the wrong thing. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. You know, I'm just like, hey, I was going with these guidelines. <laughs> I didn't see those other ones out there. Is it, uh, it's kind of funny that the beer's criteria, beer is a CNS depressant, and they're just all about, is that irony? What? The beer's criteria, beer. Oh, oh, gotcha. CNS depressant. I'm, I'm with you. Yep. Yeah, irony. Maybe it's sure. coincidence. Maybe. Hard to say. I don't like it when people use irony incorrectly. Hmm. But I don't really know how it's supposed to be used, so. Yeah, that's, that's, that's a hard one. Yeah. Um, so yeah, what else? Anything else with these? We will definitely post com- like links to the guidelines so you guys can kind of read these. This is if you're like completely confused and smashing your head against the steering wheel right now because you can't even figure out what the heck we we're just talking about. Please go look at the guidelines. It'll make sense when you can actually see it written out in table form. Yeah, that was the reason we redid this one was to highlight these guidelines and the different comorbidities and to um, cause mass confusion. And to cause mass confusion, we love that mass hysteria. Uh, but I think in the other one we didn't go as in depth on some of the background info. So I like that we did that. Good. I like it too, Cole. Love it. Glad we have our own approval. Episode 80. Done. In the books, people. In you were books. here with us. Kind of. Cool. All right. Anything else? That's all I got. All right, y'all. Thank you guys so much for listening. Um, if you have any questions, concerns, please reach out to us on any social media platforms or um, send us an email. Our emails will be listed below. Um, thank you guys so much for listening, and we will see you next time. Later.